The church is in an impossible situation right now. You see, Jesus prayed in John 17 that everyone who believed in him would become perfectly one, perfectly united, just as the Father and Son are perfectly one. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are the most divided faith group on earth. Not only was there that giant division a thousand years ago, but then they're just from that became more and more denominations, more and more churches. And every day it seems to get worse. Not just churches, but now individuals that are teaching with so much pride, believing they're the only ones who get it and causing more and more division. Now we've tried everything. We've tried the books. We've tried big conferences that'll bring us together. We tried writing doctrinal statements. But we just keep getting more and more divided. beg God together and we say Lord we want it to be like it is in heaven united around your throne we want that right now right here on earth as it is in heaven question that I'm putting before you today is that you that's going to be the message that I'm delivering and the message that I'm asking. Is that you? Are you one that truly wants the people of Jesus to be one? Do we really want to be united or do we thrive on division? I know that seems weird, the idea that we would thrive on division, but I think some of us do. We like being the ones that we're the right ones and these people over here, look at what they're doing wrong and this is the way it should be. And anybody that believes slightly different than me, then I can't have any fellowship with them. I can't have any relationship. And we build an entire industry off of that division. That's the question for this morning. Okay, heavy topic. Next week, you'll be thrilled. It's not a heavy topic at all. Uh, the topic of submission. All right, so we'll dive into... This will be the last week. That was sarcasm, by the way. Anyway, it'll be the last week where we're acting like Jesus. So after next week, you won't have to act like him anymore. We'll take a week, uh, and then we'll start into the putting the two together. Thinking like Jesus, acting like Jesus being like Jesus. And that's the way we'll finish this series, okay, for several weeks. So for next week, if everybody submits to someone or something, and we all do, we all submit, whether or not we believe it, we do, then what is it? I want you to dwell on that. What is it? Who am I submitting to and what does that reveal about me? Think about those things as you read those two chapters. Job, the 22nd chapter, and then 1 Peter chapter 2. All right, this week, Here's the truth. Division is everywhere. It's all around us. And if you didn't believe that before last Friday, you certainly believe it now. 
Social media is on fire. Everybody has an opinion. You have world leaders that are commenting on the state of abortion in America. And division is everywhere. The hatred seems to be even greater than it was on Thursday. And people are, are divisive and mean towards each other. We call ourselves the United States of America. But you know as well as I do that we have never, well maybe one time in our history, we've been more divided than what we are now. Save the Civil War, I don't know of a time that you could say that our country was more divided, our culture more divided than it is now. If you polled the people living in the red states and asked them if they wanted to secede from the people in the blue states, they would say overwhelmingly yes. And if you polled the people in the blue states, if they wanted to secede and be separate from the people in the red states, they would say overwhelmingly yes. And both of those two sides would say, just wait until those people see what it's like without us. They're not going to survive without us. We're going to show them. That's the state of our culture. That's where the world is today. Over and over we can see that. Racially we're divided, politically we're divided, socially we're divided, economically we are divided. In all of those areas, walls are being built and conflict is everywhere. You have to take a position on this side or this side of whatever the issue is. That's the status of the world that we live in. And people, many of us, are desperate for resolution and we're desperate for answers. And so what has what is fomented in, in, in our desire for a, an answer to all of this stuff, well, we've had an entire industry that's developed, millions of solutions every year. All of these books being written, all of these politicians who will say, well, if you elect me, I will be president for all Americans. I'll bring us together. No more red states and blue states. We're going to have the purple states of America, and there's not going to be any more division, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be what you need me to be. And both political parties do it, and we continue following one or the other, and what are we seeing? The division's getting worse. It's not getting better. All of the solutions that are offered, all of the people on television that say, well, if we just did this, then that would solve our problem. All of these solutions and the division is getting worse. And I'm going to suggest to you what the people of God should know. Don't expect the powers of this world to unify our divisions or to harmonize our factions. Who is it that controls the powers and the principalities of this world? Satan. And Satan is a master of what? Division. Hatred. Why would you ever turn to the powers and the principalities that are controlled by the master of division and think that you are ever going to come about with unity? It's never going to happen. And so because of that, here's the contrast. Jesus prayed intently in the Garden of Gethsemane that in a world where everybody is at each other's throats and everybody hates each other and this is the way you should be and this is the way you should be and we want to blow each other up, that standing out like a sore thumb would be his church. His church would be a model of unity in the face of outright division and hatred in the world. Now, I didn't have you read John 17, which is the chapter on unity. I didn't have you read it. I knew it was going to be the background of the text, so I had you read a couple supplemental uh, texts. But if you want to open to John 17, you can, because that's where I'm going to be for the majority of this message. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. I want you to see how many times he hits on this idea of unity. This is right before he goes to the cross. Look in verse 11. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that what? Look at this. So that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is talking to the Father. 
We know Jesus and the Father are one. And he is saying, I want my church to be as united as I am with you. That's verse 11. Skip ahead to verse 21. That all of them, all of my followers may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. There's the comparison again. That the people who call themselves by my name will be as united as I am with you. That's what he is praying for. Now keep going in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. How many times, by the way, I don't mean to sound mean in this message. I'm just really, really passionate about this. This has really been a conviction point for me over the course of several weeks in preparing this message. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to channel the passion and I don't mean to come across as angry with you. And Why won't you unite with me? That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm, I'm just, I'm really, because Jesus was really worried. Worked up about this. And I think we overlook it. They may be one as we are one. He's saying it over and over and over. Look at verse 23. This is the culmination. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. That's what I want for my church. And why? Because it will stand out in a world of outright division. That's his prayer. And yet despite that, what is the truth of the church today? The truth of the people that call themselves by Jesus' name is the utter opposite of this. It's what Francis Chan said in that video. The most divided faith group on planet Earth. Jesus praying for unity and we can't help but love to point out all of our divisions that we have with one another. And the world sees that. I'm going to be serious with you that I think that if you're looking for a unified movement... You could get more unity out of the LGBT movement. Those people have each other's back, and there's a sense of unity and support in that community far more than you get from the Church of Jesus Christ. That is amazing to me, and how that must break the Father's heart. That a worldly movement has more unity than what the church does. That's the truth. We mimic the world. And division envelops us. And by the way, when I say that, I don't just mean the division that we call denominationalism. That you have Pentecost and then the Catholic Church that then breaks across and you got the Anabaptist movement. And you got the Reform movement and you've got the, the Reformation and all of this. And then way down here at the bottom you've got us. This is where Jerome is down here off of this little branch that comes all the way down there. I don't just mean that. Because here's the easy thing. When I say we ought to have unity, Jesus prays for unity. The easy question is, so unity means no denominations. We need to get rid of denominations. That's what you're saying. Well, it's an interesting question to ask someone in this church tradition. It's an interesting question for you to ask me, given the history of this local body. And if you're taking Ben's uh, what, what we believe class, he digs into that a little bit. But this is a church that came from the restoration movement that started in 1800. And what that was all about was a bunch of Christians getting together and saying, you know what, this denomination stuff It doesn't really seem to be in line with John 17. doesn't really seem to be in line with what Jesus was wanting from his church. The whole purpose was, we want to get away from that. We want to, instead of having these hierarchies that determine what we're going to do, and naturally there's division in those hierarchies, we want local control modeled after the New Testament. We just do what the New Testament church did. That's what we're going to, that was the restoration movement. So that's why, if you've ever noticed, um, you'll have like uh, in, in some church traditions and denominations, your minister will suddenly get moved to another church. You didn't ask him to get moved. He didn't want to move, but he was moved. Why? Because there's a hierarchy, a church hierarchy that says, well, we need you over here now. 
Okay, so there's a hierarchy of control. That's one element of denominationalism that you don't see here. We don't, as J Jerome, we don't go to conferences and have votes over doctrine. Doctrine's determined at the local level because it's modeled after the New Testament church. So we technically can't be considered a, a denomination, but what do people obviously say? Well, yeah, but you got the churches of Christ. And they're separate from all of these others, so whether you want to admit it or not, that's a denomination is what that is. And we say, no, 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 we don't call ourselves a denomination. We're non-denominational. But you're a non-denominational denomination. Okay, it all depends. It all depends on how you determine and define what denomination actually means. If you're going by hierarchy, then yeah, this wouldn't be a denomination. But my point is, it doesn't really matter in the sense of this argument, because even in the restoration movement... Are you suggesting that we are free of division? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that really what you would suggest? That we are free of division? That, well, we've got it all figured out. It's nuts. No, you see, this isn't... Yeah, denominations, all of that. That's not getting to the heart of the question. If you, if you get to the heart of the question, then denominations are going to evaporate. Why? Because unity means oneness of purpose. That's what unity means, that we all have the same purpose, that that's what we're focused on. Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to be the same people. Obviously, the people in Greentown are going to be different than the people in Denver, Colorado. And the people in Denver, Colorado are probably more like us than the people in, in Sri Lanka who are worshiping Jesus. It's not the same people, and we don't all have the same perspectives, and we don't all have the same talents. That's not what's going on here. Go back to verse 22 and see what he says. The Father and the Son, uh, I want my followers to be unified like you and I are unified. Now, the Father and the Son are not the same person. They are distinct persons in the Trinity. So that's the point here. Unity isn't about making us all the same. It's about getting us all on the same page, with the same purpose, with the same focus. The Father and the Son are on the same page. And you say, oh, point of order, Peter. That isn't entirely accurate. Because you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Clearly Jesus was not on the same page with the Father, not in that moment. All right, now we could quibble over terminology. I don't really want to do that right now. But to the degree that that is true, that they weren't on the same page on the cross, why might that be? Might it be because in that moment the son had taken on sin, the sins of the world, and that is what God is opposed to, the sins of the world. That is what God must punish, meaning what? Sin destroys unity. So follow me, the degree to which unity does not exist in the body of Christ is directly proportional to what? The result of sin's presence within the body of Christ. The degree that we do not have unity is the degree to which we have invited sin into the body of Christ. And I'm talking the sins of pride and jealousy and resentment and arrogance. It becomes about me. It becomes about what I think. And all of you are wrong. I don't want to have any part of you because you're wrong on this. We invite sin's presence and unity evaporates. And you know who loves that? Satan does. The master of division. Take America's most popular sport, okay? Obviously, we all understand that that is football and not 
soccer, uh, football the way it was meant to be played. Anyway, uh, so you got America's most popular sport. I've probably offended some of you, but the truth is the truth, and you must accept it because this is about unity. So we're all now on the same page that American football is the greatest sport. Now, what do you have when two football teams are out there? you got two teams on opposite sides, so let's take one of them. One's on offense, one's on defense. Let's just take the offense. When the offense is out there, you got 11 different dudes, and they all have 11 different jobs. they got 11 different responsibilities, 11 different talent levels, 11 different sizes. I mean, you've got the kicker out there. Well, he's not on offense, but, I mean, the little twerpy guy. Hey, guys, let's go play. And then you got the big, beefy linebackers, 11 different attitudes. Some guys play mean. And then you got guys like Andrew Luck. Did any of you remember Andrew? This guy would get sacked, just get his head taken off, his liver lacerated, and he would hop up. Have you ever heard him on the mic'd up stuff and be like, hey, man, that was a great hit. That was really, really good. And the defender's like, what is wrong with you, man? You? Anyway, I loved Andrew Luck for that, and then he broke my heart. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So you got all these 11 different people, and yet a successful team has what? 11 different guys that all wear the same uniform, they're going in the same direction, they have the same focus, the same objective, the same purpose. And when they lose this, hopefully not the wrong uniform, when they lose this, then everything falls apart for them and they're not nearly as effective. That's it. Sin changes our purpose. Sin makes our purpose no longer about the will of God, it becomes about us. We start desiring what? Well, we want to be the biggest congregation, and we want to have the biggest budget, and people ought to listen to us, and we want the bigger building, and we should have more prestige than all of these other places. And yeah, you can go over there, but why wouldn't you come over here? And we try to pick off people from other denominations and other churches and bring them in, and the rivalry ensues because it's become all about us. And that kind of competition, where we have competing goals, and competing purposes, that leads to disunity, and it leads to discord. So the first step in achieving unity in the body of Christ is what? The first step in achieving unity in the body of Christ is right there in verse 4. Look at what Jesus says. I brought you glory. I brought you glory on earth by doing what? By finishing the work that you gave me to do. The first step for unity in the body of Christ is doing the will of God. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find that if we are busy doing the will of God, and the local Methodist church is busy doing the will of God, and the local Presbyterian church is busy doing the will of God, the more we are doing the will of God, the less we're going to notice our divisions, and the more in unity and harmony we're going to be. That doesn't mean we're not going to have disagreements. But if we are committed to doing the will of God on earth... And we're following the instructions for that, which we'll get to. You will see his will and his work, not just his name. And that's our problem. So many times believers are focused on hijacking the name of Jesus to endorse our own work and our own will. That's where division comes. When it becomes about our work and our will and what we're doing here rather than what the body of Christ is doing in the world. That's the key. So how do you guard against your way? and your will entering in? Well, that's an important question. If we all want to be doing the work of God, and you say, well, I want the Methodists to be doing the work of God and the Presbyterians to be doing the will of God, how do we know whether or not it's the will of God? Well, there's an answer to that. John 17, verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them. Okay, what is sanctify? Separate them. Separate. you got a world full of division. I want you, God, to separate my followers by the truth. Your word is truth. 
So how do you know, how do you guard against your own way and your own will being what is driving you? It's right there. That is the linchpin. This is the linchpin for biblical unity. That's one of the reasons that we have the scriptures. All of our different takes on race and society and economics and politics. How in the world do you get unity when there are such divisive questions? Well, the answer is staring us right in the face. The only reliable standard is this. Because outside of this, the word of God, what do you have? You have the word of men. And men are going to be divided. And who's to say that that man's word is any more reliable than this man's word? If that's all we have are people's opinions and church hierarchy's opinions, there will be division. But when we are unified in the word of God, that truth is what sanctifies us and separates us. I remember several years ago, I was sitting out there in the congregation and Dave was preaching. I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I remember his analogy. I'm sure that's exactly as he wanted it. But anyway, in the analogy, he's telling about this ship captain. And some of you will remember this. The ship captain, he's, he's piloting his ship or captaining his ship, whatever you do with his ship, and he's sailing through and it's dark and it's foggy and all of a sudden the radio squawks and the, and the voice comes over, uh, shift two degrees northward uh, to avoid collision. And the captain comes back and says, you know, we're a huge ship, we can't do that, it'll take us too much time. You shift two degrees southward. And the voice comes back and says, negative, negative, uh, shift immediately two degrees northward to avoid collision. And the captain comes back, and he, he's very prideful, very arrogant. You don't know who you're talking to. He starts listing off all of the ships that he's captain and how big this thing is and how important it is and says, listen, buddy, you shift two degrees southward immediately to avoid that collision. You remember what the voice comes back and says? Yeah, yeah, okay, some of you remember this. Good, yeah, it's a negative, negative, I'm the lighthouse. Right, and the lighthouse is not going to be able to move, okay? That's the point. Ships, no matter how rigid we may be, no matter how stuck to what we believe we may be, we can move. The lighthouse is not going to move. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must obey this, even when it goes against our traditions, even when it goes against what we really think is the best way to do stuff. Well, this is the way we've always done it. Fine. Does it comport with the word of God or not? One question that we should ask every time in any dispute, the first question that we should always ask if we desire unity is what has God said on the subject? Now, we're not always going to come to an agreement on what God said. And in that sense, what are we going to need? We're going to need humility. We're going to need love and charity with one another. To sit down with one another and pour over the word of God and trust that it is reliable. But that has to be the first question. Take, uh, take cultural questions that we ask. Should our church put up political signs? All right. Some people say yes, and some churches do. Other people say no, that's not the role of the church. Uh, what, should our church house legal immigrants and protect them? If they came looking for sanctuary at our church, should we do that? Some people will say, yes, that's the role of the church. Other people say, no, we shouldn't get involved in that, and we got to obey the laws of the land. Turn to the word of God. That's where we turn to first. Should our church close down during COVID, or should we remain open for those that want to attend? Okay, Different people had different views on that. Where should we be going first? Not our own opinions about any of this stuff. To the word of God. What does the word of God say about this? And the same is true on doctrinal questions. You have people who call themselves Christians. They go by the name of Christ. And we are very divided over doctrine. For instance, what about the supposed revelations that Jesus gives to the Native Americans after he's ascended in the Middle East? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints say that Jesus came back 
And they'll get very offended if you tell them that they're not Christians. They'll say, no, look at our church title. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That same Jesus came here and Joseph Smith wrote it all down. And he started this church and this movement. They called themselves by the name of Jesus. How do we deal with that? First question, what does the word of God say? Say about a man, currently his name is Jorge Bergoglia, who claims to be the vicar of Christ, that he speaks with the voice of Christ and the authority of Christ on matters of biblical understanding and interpretation in the world. Uh, the church calls him the Pope. Okay, But Jorge Bergoglia, does he have that authority? How do we answer that question? What does God say on the subject? That's the first place we go. What about the necessity of water immersion and baptism? Is that necessary or is it not necessary? What do we do? Different churches say different things. What does the word of God say? We'll go there first and we'll find the answer to that. What about speaking in tongues? Is that a real thing? What about speaking prophecy? All of these are divisions within the body of Christ that need to be dealt with first and foremost by asking the question, what does the word of God say? And you say, yeah, but Peter, the people that believe that speaking in tongues is still a thing say, word of God says it is. And those of us that say that it's not still a thing, Word of God says that it's not. I understand that. This has to be the first question. It doesn't mean it's going to solve all of the problems, but if this isn't the first question, if that isn't where we turn, forget unity. It is never going to happen. Because we're simply mimicking and following the ways of the world. God has given us principles, and he's given us precepts, and listen, his word is sufficient. To the degree that we disagree over the word of God... That's our problem, not his problem. And we need to show humility and prayer in understanding. This is the truth. The alternative to trusting God, Romans 3 says it, let God be true and every man a liar. I'm not going to listen to men. Let God be true. And what happens when the church listens to liars as it forms its doctrine and its beliefs? I find this unreal. I simply, and I think there'll be people that will look back on our era and will say, I cannot believe that the church of Jesus Christ was once divided on this. But at one point in history, the church of Jesus in the United States was divided on the issue of slavery and segregation. There were people that would say, well, slavery supported in the scriptures. Man, all you have to do is open to the book of Exodus and see that those very principles of, of uh, kidnapping someone and putting them into forced labor... The law of God declared that to be a capital crime worthy of death. But because every man is a liar, people who wanted to do what they wanted to do would use scripture and abuse it to justify whatever it was they wanted to do. And what was the solution? Understanding the truth of what God's word says. Biblical authority is the only way to achieve unity. Because outside of biblical authority, all we have is the authority of whatever the current cultural movement is. But you say, wait... I can see it. It's on your face. You're all saying, wait, how does all of this square with that famous declaration of Jesus? You remember what he tells his disciples in Luke 12? This is a famous line. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And this is the moment where you just want to take it and throw it up in the air. All right, I give up. I'm done. He's telling me to be unified. And then he tells me he came to bring division. What am I supposed to do with that? I understand, but what is this telling us? Here's the key. This should tell us there is a time for people of God to draw lines in the sand. There is a time for legitimate division. And how do we know what is a time for legitimate division? Where pursuing unity is not biblical? This is your only hope of understanding where that line is. Biblical authority forces us to divide over sin and false teaching. 
When someone says and preaches that a certain activity is holy, that God's word declares is sinful, we must divide on that point. We cannot find unity when you are declaring as holy something that God's word declares is sin. When somebody is preaching a different Jesus, is saying that Jesus came and appeared to the Native Americans and Joseph Smith brought it it all down and we know that that contradicts the word of God that is once for all entrusted to the saints. We know that what Joseph Smith did has been proven to be false. We know that there's no evidence for that. We say, with as kind as you all are, and you will very rarely meet nicer people, speaking in generalities, than those in the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is preaching a different Jesus. And if you are preaching a different Jesus, that is a point in time where we must divide. That is what Jesus, that's why we don't pursue unity and say, well, Muslims and Buddhists, we're all worshiping the same thing. We just call God by different names. How do we know where to divide? The word of God teaches us those things. That's how we know. It's better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. I want to say that again. It is better for us, this is what Jesus is teaching, it is better for us to be divided by truth. When you are preaching a different Jesus, I cannot have unity with you than to be united in error just for the sake of unity. But there are many people who are preaching Christ crucified. They are preaching the same Jesus with whom I disagree over matters of discipline and doctrine. Many are teaching the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus. They're preaching Christ crucified and Christ is the only salvation for our sins that I disagree with over doctrine. Our differences are real and I don't mean to downplay them. Our solution to this is conversation. Our solution to this is prayer and ultimate submission to the word of God. Prayer for one another. Love for one another as people who love Jesus. Not contempt, not resentment. There is no call in scripture for us to break fellowship with those people. Listen, this is why I had you read Mark 9. Go to Mark 9. This is a tough lesson for some of us. Look at what happens here in Mark 9. Pick it up in verse 38. Uh, If you don't have it, I'm reading it to you. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. You see the pride there? Uh, He wasn't one of us. He's not in our group, so therefore he can't be part of our team because he wasn't with us. And how does Jesus respond? Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. He's not going to lose his reward. Man, this is a tough teaching. Here's how uh, Tony Evans puts it. And I really, I'm hijacking this line because it's good. You can have fellowship even if you don't have membership with other believers. What does that mean? There's all sorts of reasons why we choose our congregation. For some of us, it's doctrinal disagreements. I want to be in a church that I think is ultimately doctrinally correct. And I want to make sure that that's what I'm preaching and teaching. Okay, other people choose their church because, oh, it's the closest one. I don't have to get up as early on Sunday morning. So it's geographic location. That's why you choose your church. Other people like the music. Other people like the preaching. All right. Anyway, so there's all of these different reasons that people will choose, and you have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom in Christ to choose that congregation. And there may well be a very good reason why you do not maintain membership with another body of believers. But breaking fellowship 
with those other believers because of those disagreements that is trampling on the familial relationship that all of us called by Jesus are to have. Look at verse 41, and that's what he's talking about. It teaches that any contributions to the kingdom are important. Look, I disagree with Methodists on some of their doctrine, but when they are out doing the work of Jesus in the community, that is something I want to promote. I want to make the name of Jesus famous. I want, to, I want to partner with them and say, yes, this house was destroyed by a tornado or lost in a fire. And the people who are called by the name of Jesus, despite our disagreements, are unified in love. And that's why we're here. Anybody who gives a cup of water to someone because you are in Christ, they won't lose their reward. That's what Jesus says. The man here is obviously a believer, but the disciples are worried. But he's not a believer like us. He's not one of us. And Jesus' response there is almost identical. Well, Paul's response is almost identical to what Jesus does when Paul is asked about other people, other believers. And he says, I'm just concerned and happy that the gospel is being preached. That's what I want. They may not be preaching it exactly how I would or where I would in the same manner that I would. I'm thankful that the name of Jesus is being spread. Is that us? Is that our desire? Jesus, and don't tell me that Jesus and Paul, well, I'm not sure they stood for truth. I don't know that they were tough enough on the... This is Jesus and Paul, for heaven's sake. They are warning those of us who our natural tendency is to build walls that sometimes those walls aren't necessary and sometimes those walls can be destructive. How do we know? We need to pray for discernment. And we, in us drawing lines between us and other believers, pray for discernment that we are not destroying the unity that is necessary for others to believe. Because what happens when we are unified? This is my favorite part of the message, by the way. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. When we are unified... As a body of Christ, we will see the glory of Christ on display. That, that moves me right there. That unity in the body of Christ, the world will see the glory of Christ. Others will see God in us. Not just hear us speaking the name of God. Not just taking God's name and attaching it to things that we say and that we believe. They will experience and see the power and the glory. Do you remember when Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When we are unified in work for the kingdom, the world will see the glory of God in us, and as long as we are divided, the world is not going to see that glory of Christ. We'll just look like another worldly organization. You can pray for revival, and you can pray for influence and effectiveness, but if we are not unified as the body of Christ, why in the world would we expect that that's going to happen? Why would we expect it to work? God is not interested in showing up where his people are bickering and arguing with one another. That isn't his desire. His involvement with us is tied to our commitment to unity. You read Psalm 133 this week. I had you read it for this reason. It is the only place in all of scripture where we see God commanding a blessing. Now, you didn't see that if you read it in the NIV, because the NIV doesn't use that terminology. King James and other, uh, other translations do. The original word, God is commanding a blessing. If you do this, I will command a blessing. Come on, you. When God commands something, it happens, baby. And what is the criteria for that blessing to be commanded? You can go back and read Psalm 133, but I'll give you one guess what it is. It is us being unified as believers 
When we are unified, God will command a blessing. We sing songs like God Bless America. I've looked at the words. We've all looked at the words. They're great words. But does anybody think that our culture even begins to have the power to pull that off? God blessing a pagan nation? Why? Well, I mean, I don't understand the idea behind that. God's objective is to bring himself glory, not to glorify a pagan nation. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to glorify himself. So wouldn't it make more sense for us, far more sense to sing and to pray and to desire and to crave that God bless his church? If God blessed the church, what would happen, not just to this culture, what would happen to this world if God commanded a blessing on his church and came down in power and worked through them, listen, we can't do it. I don't know, uh, Francis Chan said it in the beginning. The church is in an impossible situation. That's true. To get all these denominations to agree, impossible situation by man's standards. But what does Jesus tell us? That in God, all things are possible. I believe that it's possible. I believe it's possible, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have prayed for it. Why would he have prayed for something that was impossible to achieve? So what must we do if we want to see unity among the believers? I can't control what other people do. I can control what I do. And so what will I do? I will be an agent of unity myself. I will look for ways to partner with others proclaiming the name of Jesus. I will look for ways to build bridges and tear down walls in order to make the name of Jesus famous. That's what I will do. Secondly, I will love my fellow believers, even with no membership. I will have doctrinal disagreements with people, but I will love them, and the world will see how I love them. I will break bread with them. I will sit with them. I will care for them. I will treat them as well as, as, as anybody could treat them. I will love those that I don't have membership with. Thirdly, I want to model it here. What if this body was known for their love of God's people? Even those with whom we disagree. That Jerome was a light in that way. That the community knew these people will be there. They're not going to be strictly isolated by themselves. I'll model it here and I'm going to teach it to my family. My kids are going to hear me praising the work of other believers. And look at what they did in Jesus' name. Rather than, well, those people don't believe exactly like us. I don't know about that. I want to model it here. I want it to be unity that we are desiring. Francis Chan, I mentioned him before, he uses the analogy of a Lego. He holds up this Lego and he said, for, for so much of my life, I wanted to be this. This bright, shiny, brand new Lego. Did anybody play with Legos? We all played with Legos, yes. My favorite Lego piece, you know the little, um, it was like the thing. The, it's like the lid that comes down, that's the see-through blue thing that like it's the, what is that called? The canopy that you pull down like in an airplane. I loved that piece. But on its own, as cool as that piece may be, some of you are smiling because you love that little piece too, yes? Okay, yeah, the little blue piece. That was the coolest piece in the world. But even a cool little piece like that, you sit there and look at one piece. Who wants to look at individual Legos? Oh, this one's got really sharp corners. I mean, after a while, there's not really much to look at anymore. But man, you put that thing into a Lego temple or a Lego battleship or a Lego, something like that. Let's go with temple. It's a little more biblical. You put that thing into a Lego temple and everybody, look how cool that thing is. That's the point. 
I'm having you read this passage for next week on submission, but look at what it says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That is the desire, that we are being built into the spiritual temple. We are a Lego temple. You're an individual Lego piece. And all of these other people professing the name of Jesus, they are Lego pieces. And they're being put together into a Lego temple. And you should be honored to be part of anything that Christ is the cornerstone of. What an incredible temple. You know what scripture says? It says that this temple that we're a part of is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Okay, stop and realize what that's saying. That God is putting me in the same building, the same construct. I'm, putting, I'm being put right next to who? I'm joining next to Paul and Martha and Peter and Esther and James and Mary and John and Ruth and Stephen and Tabitha and Nicodemus and Lydia and Timothy and Priscilla. I'm right there with them. What an honor that is for me. That is the coolest thing in the world to me. But that's not even the best part. I saved the best for last. That's not even the best part right there. The best part, we are the temple and what happens in the temple of God. Okay, go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is after they've constructed the temple. Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. And what happens when the temple is constructed? Verse 1, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not even go into the temple because the glory of God was there filling it. When the temple was constructed, as it was desired by God, his presence came down and filled it. What an amazing scene that must have been. They had all the people on the outside had to stand at a different distance and they couldn't even look because the glory of God was there. No mistaking it. Okay, switch to the New Testament and what becomes the temple? It's no longer a building. What is the temple? The believers are the temple. You remember when it first started? Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? All of the believers are in that upper room and they're sitting there and they're waiting and they're all in one accord and they're singing songs of praise. They are unified as believers and what happens? The glory of God descends like tongues of flame. Fire descends and the spirit of God came upon them, filled them, the temple. That's my point. We have all of these different strategies for, for impacting the world and building the kingdom of God and the truth is we don't seem to be getting anywhere in that. But God had a plan. He had a plan for his church to be distinct and different. He wanted us to be so unified and so in love with each other that what? That it would stand out in a world full of division. Okay, the world full of division is there. What we're lacking right now is that unified church that Jesus prayed for. And why did he pray for it? Here's how we close. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for my followers. Jesus is saying, I'm not just praying for my followers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The message of my unified church is going to impact other people. That all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. May my followers be in us for what purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Are you a person who desires unity? Or are you a person who thrives on division in the body of Christ? Because I'm telling you, this is why it's important. The world will come to believe the message of Jesus when his church stands united and proclaims his majesty to a lost and a dying world. 
I'm ready for us to be unified in that message. I'm ready for us to be different than everything people see everywhere else. They don't come to church and get more of the same of what they get from the world. Division and hatred and animosity and rivalry. But here they find a group of people committed to one cause, one God, one Savior, one salvation. If you want to join that, this is your time. Come forward. We'll baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Receive the forgiveness of sins. You can join us here as a body of believers. You can go out into the world and love as Jesus loved. Maybe you are already a committed follower of Christ. You need prayer. Maybe you need to rededicate whatever it is. Roommate, you can go back and ask for prayer. Come forward, ask the whole congregation for it. I don't care what it is. I just care that you not wait. The world needs the unified message of the church. Don't wait. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?